And so I actually ended up dropping out of high school, not once, but twice. I never graduated. And while all my friends were off to college, I was living with my parents, gaming up to 16 hours a day in their basement. I remember I was, I was drunk when they handed me my son in the hospital. They didn't know I was drunk. I worked with people who could stay abstinent from crack cocaine. And then they went back to prison because they could not stay abstinent from marijuana. They will send inappropriate pictures, primarily of their body parts. Our teens will send back their naked pictures or partially naked pictures. I had overdosed in eighth grade. I think that was shortly after I was suspended. Our teens are going through their hardest life transition in a world of rapid change and information anarchy. These are their stories and the advice from experts dedicated to helping them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I am your host, Aaron Huey. My guest today is Kevin Peterson. And Kevin and I are saying and talking about how the whole family needs help. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with myself and the families who are looking for support. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm, this is like my favorite topic ever. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this. So as we get started into the topic, I, Kevin, when you and I were talking and we chatted really briefly and we were like, I, I was like, we got to do a show. And what we were talking about is something that I learned actually from Dr. Patch Adams. I met Dr. Patch Adams many, many years ago ago when he came to my father's hospital. And a big part of his talk was, I remember a line that he said, he said, your grandmother does not have Alzheimer's. Your family has Alzheimer's. If you single out the grandmother and not treat the family, no one will heal. And it was, it's been a big, overwhelming philosophy in my life and in running and founding a treatment center for teenagers. We never, ever allowed the parents to say to us, fix my kid or drop their kids off to us and hope that four months later their kid is magically <laughs> going to be healed. And I'm happy to say, I think we have a larger parent intervention part of our program than I've seen in any other type of treatment center. But when you and I met, that was your big push is that you were like, this is family recovery. This isn't an addict. This isn't a child. This isn't this kid. This is the family. So, Start, if you would, Kevin, with a little background on yourself and how you ended up treating the whole family when a person's in recovery. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where the bottom line is I grew up in a family of addiction. You know, my, my mom, who died three years ago, was a prescription drug addict. And I grew up fairly well off in Palo Alto, California, in a really nice home and lots of things, lots of really good stuff. And on the outside, everything looked fantastic. You know, we had plenty of money. We had BMWs. We had golden retrievers. We had a big house and you know, we lived down the street from Stanford University. And but on the inside, there was just a lot of chaos, drama and crisis that, you know, Growing up as a kid, you think, well, this must just be how things are because you don't know anybody. And then, um, you know, when I started drinking and using drugs in high school and then went off to college. And in the fall of 1982, I went to Southern California and USC in Los Angeles. And that's when the wheels really came off the wagon for me. I really just started partying really hard and developing my own addiction. 
I got ended up cutting to the chase. I ended up getting sober in 1991. I went back to Los Angeles to finish at USC. I'd gotten kicked out from using drugs and alcohol. And then in 2007, uh, I had been you know, continuously sober since 91 and, and still am and still a very active 12-step person. I ended up at 43 years old sort of having this epiphany thinking, you know, here I am doing sales again, which I love. I love people, but I'm not really getting any spiritual fulfillment from my day-to-day work. And I started talking to a couple of buddies of mine that had made some significant changes in their life, wanted to become a therapist and wanted to become a nurse. And, you know, I realized that I didn't want to be one of those guys that could have, should have, would have for the rest of their lives. So I figured I was 43 and I was halfway through my life expectancy. So the time was now. And I literally quit my job. I enrolled at Regis University in Denver and I ended up graduating in 2011 with a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. I worked three and a half years for Arapahoe Douglas Mental Health, which is a community mental health facility down in Arapahoe and Douglas County. And I was in child and family services. And what I found there that really sung to my heart is that my job was to work with these kids and their families that were really struggling with drugs, alcohol, suicide, bullying, et cetera, et cetera. And what, what I really, what really, you know, sort of became incredibly obvious to me is that it wasn't just the kid, like you said earlier, it was the, it was the entire family system that had to change. And our goal was to prevent hospitalization of these kids. It was to put them in an environment where we could go home with them and really teach the family how to restructure. And that's what I've ended up doing in my private practice for the last almost four years. And, you know, like when you and I met, that was really, we were, you know, it's always funny to meet someone that you don't have to explain things to. You start talking <laughs> to them and they're like, yeah, I do the same thing. It's like, oh my God, another member of the flock. <laughs> let's, uh, let's start with that one. I think you brought up something really good where you talk about, you know, working with families about restructuring. So my listeners are families with kids in recovery or kids. The reason why I call it beyond risk and back is because at risk behaviors were happening last year, three years ago, right? Now these kids mm. are beyond risk and parents are hitting that, that crucial perturbation point. And when a kid goes into recovery, the first things that I see a parent go through is a lot of guilt and then a lot of shame, a little bit more guilt, a ton more shame. And then once they start working their way through that, they want to load up on tools so that they can teach differently or lecture differently or help their kid do what they learn. But you said restructure. And that's pretty significant compared to learning a couple tools and techniques. And, oh, I was taught nonviolent communication. Great. And what do you mean by restructure? When you're working with a family, what things are you helping them restructure? Well, it's, it's honestly, here, here's the thing. My thing is, and this is kind of my belief system, is that you don't change a company by firing the receptionist. You've got to start at the management or the CEO and work your way down. And, and change the way they're doing business. And I feel the same way about family. You don't come after the 12, 13, 14 year old or 18 year old and you know really go after them. Well, if we can fix them, everything's gonna be okay. Like you said, uh, the analogy I always use is that, you know, parents wanna drop them off like they're taking a TV back to Costco and saying, this one's broken, fix it, I'll be back in a couple hours, you know? So that's always been my philosophy. <laughs> and um, the 
essence of what I like to do is really capture the mom and the dad or whoever the parents are and sit down with them and say, all right, let's take a look at how things are today. And nobody comes to me when things are good. People are like you guys, you know, just like your facility, you know, people come to you when the house is on fire, right. you know, and so they need help settling the fire immediately. So that's the first things first, right? You've got to triage the situation. You know, is the kid in and out of jail? Is the kid, you know, is the kid drinking? He was in drugs. Are they stealing? Is there poor behavior at home? Great. Let's set up some immediate structure in the house that goes after that. And I'm a big fan of love and logic. I'm not a big fan of monitoring kids 24-7 and hovering over them. You know, it's like, hey, look, here's the deal. My big three things are drugs and alcohol, academics, and behavior. And I tell the parents, just set up your expectations today, right now, today. What are your expectations? No drugs and alcohol. Okay, great. We're going to do regular drug tests. You can buy them on Amazon. They're cheap. Oh, he'll, he knows how to fake those. Okay, great. Get a hair follicle test. You can't fake that. You know, I have an answer for all that stuff. And then the next thing is academics. From here forward, we're going to get a report every week from school from each teacher and, and seeing how he does. And let's talk about what the expectations are. The expectation A's and B's, great. Then if on Friday afternoon, if he doesn't have A's and B's this week, then he's going to spend his weekend getting A's and B's. And that means no phone, no TV, you know, whatever the family structure needs to be. And is he, is he behaving poorly at home? Is he, you know, treating his brothers and sisters poorly? Is he treating his parents poorly, using foul language, lying? Great. We're just going to make things really clear. We're going to have a family meeting once a week, maybe in therapy, and we're just going to review the behavior. And it's not punitive. It's not shaming. It's not guilt-driven. It's just very fact-based and straightforward. Oh, man, what a bummer. You're flunking math. That means you're going to have to spend the weekend working on math. And no, you don't get your cell phone. And no, you don't get access to the car. And no, you can't go to the party or the football game. You have to do this instead. Oh, you flunked your drug test. Okay, well, so again, the answer is no. Um, no, we're not angry. It's just you know, it, 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 all it is is just responding to someone with respect and saying, our expectations in this house are that these things will occur. And if, you know, if the kid can't handle that, when they start to blow up, then we start talking about a place like yours. You know what I'm saying? I do. So once you've got a family, they've, they've reestablished their boundaries, because that's what you're talking about, is, is reestablishing yep. boundaries without the anger, without the unregulated parenting, where we're screaming at our kid yep. because they violated one of our values. But we've actually yeah. set up the contracts of behavior, or we've set up the boundaries beforehand when we're not angry. Now the kid has violated yeah. that, and the kid already knows that if they violate that, that we're talking to a place like ours. Now, what do you have parents do? What's your philosophy or training or teaching with parents to help them stay regulated when their kid just showed up after sneaking out, getting arrested, they had small bag of pills in their pocket, they're high, yeah. you had to pick them up at the police station, you've missed work for it. What are you telling parents to do so that they're not losing their minds before they go get their kid at the police station? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I'm a big advocate of actually digging into the family structure of the parents as well, looking at their family of origin. Because, you know, the truth is parents, so what I get is parents that have done one of two things, right? They're either super overbearing and super hovering and just very controlling, or they're all, they're very much like, yeah, whatever, you know, you'll figure it out. I don't have time for this. And that generally is in reaction to the way they were raised, you know? So 
in therapy with me, what I like to do with the parents is really dig into where they've come from and why and give them some awareness that, yeah, the reason why you're freaking out because your kid's struggling is because in your house, when you grew up, nobody cared or nobody paid attention to you or someone came after you with a stick. And so you're trying very hard to do the opposite of that. And I want to give you permission as parents to hold good boundaries with accountability and structure behind them. But we're going to remove the, the guilt, the shame, any kind of physical overwhelmingness, any kind of fighting. We're just going to take that away. And what I do to answer your question, sorry, is, is I'm big on having them read the Love and Logic books. I'm also big on them really digging into their family stuff and looking at their own stuff. And whether that's through Al-Anon or Adult Children of Alcoholics or, you know, a, a number of things like Brene Brown books that she really addresses guilt, shame, and vulnerability. And, you know, just helping them understand that if they respond to their children honestly and genuine with their behavior and their emotions, their kids are going to respond to that. If they come after their kids with anger and frustration and, you know, militant declarations, their kids are going to shut down and not listen. You know, you've brought up Love and Logic a couple times, literally five minutes before you called me to begin the show. I was on the phone with uh, Charles Fay and uh, speaking with him at length because we are a facility that utilizes Love and Logic techniques and train all of our staff and our parents in Love and Logic, including giving them all the materials. And I'm a former Love and Logic parent and a Love and Logic trainer. So I, 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 I could not agree with you more on the power and potency of love and logic as a system for working with your teens. Now, mm. the because of the, the types of clients that you and I work with, um, mm -hmm. so now you got a kid in recovery, right? The, the, kid, mm. the kid is at the hospital. They're in a crisis unit and they're going to be spending the next 10 days there because they tried to commit suicide and you caught them or they admitted to you and you called 911 and they did a 72 hour hold and now they're one of the the crisis units and their their team is saying you need a, a place like fire mountain or you need to go to think about wilderness or a boarding school or one of those conversations so you work with parents while the kids are in a center is that correct absolutely i i work with them before during and after so i always look at it great what is your work with them while a child is doing their daily work? It's about how are we going to change the way things are. We, uh, when, when, when the child is in a facility, whether it's a, uh, an inpatient PHP, IOT, whatever, when the child's in the facility, what I like to do is start talking to them about, it's really a two-pronged effort. It's like I said before, it's really working on them and helping them understand how they parent currently why that's not working and where that comes from. What are some of the, let's, let's, I want to break right there. Sorry to interrupt, but we, no, it's okay. I know that if I, when I ask this question, you and I are going to kind of giggle because, but, but we need parents to hear this. When you are having the conversation with a parent about what's not working, what are the top three things that you find yourself <laughs> always saying to them? <laughs> oh gosh uh the top three things oh, that's a great one you know the thing is the first thing is that i always and i was actually just this morning when i uh, was, was talking to uh someone about this i don't want to label your kid as an addict or anything along those lines right now let's not worry about 
a diagnosis or a label. Let's t- let's take a look at your kid's behavior. You know, are they struggling with drugs and alcohol? Great, let's get them help. Yeah, are they struggling with academics? Great, let's get them help. Are they struggling with regulating their behavior? Great, let's get them help. I don't want to get real caught up in what label, what medication. I think it's more important to help the family say, okay, our son or daughter really struggles with suicidal ideation and smokes a lot of pot. Okay, well, let's get them some help. Let's, let's remove the drugs and the alcohol so we can go after the suicidal ideation. So, I mean, sorry, I'm not really answering your question. The top three things. I think the first thing I want to do is normalize things for them and help them understand that because they think that they're so off the charts, that they're, they're the only one in the, on their block that's dealing with this. Right. We call that and I want recovery. We call that terminal uniqueness. Uh, <laughs> well, yes. And they're so full of shame behind it. Like, what right. have we done wrong? Right. This is our fault. And I'm like, you know, here's the thing. And that's where being a, you know, being a child of an addict and being an addict really comes into play and saying, look, you could be the greatest parent on the planet. If your kid has a propensity to drugs and alcohol, your kid has a propensity to drug and alcohol. Right. That's, that's just, that's just is how it is. And if your kid lacks the discipline and structure to learn how to, to be successful academically, then, you know, again, let's help him. Let's not, I find that a lot of people want to sort of track down the blame, especially if they're divorced. And that really doesn't serve any purpose in my estimation. So I guess that's number one is, normalizing for the family and then dismissing any sort of whose fault it is and getting more into setting up some family structure and coming up with a solution. Does that answer your question? Did I, did I answer your question properly? Yeah, it does. And I want to repeat it. So you're talking first you normalize it, then you set up a family structure and then you focus on the solutions. Yeah. And I I think your question was, what are the things I hear? And I think the first thing is what's wrong with our kid and whose fault is it? And then they kind of like, okay, well, what do we do? And honestly, it's what do we do with the kid, not what do we do with the family? Right. In recovery, it's called the identified patient. You've got someone in the family <laughs> and, and everybody yeah. is focusing on that. Aunt, aunt so-and-so is focusing on it. Uncle so-and-so is called and lecture the kid. Grandma has, you know, it, it, and everybody is focus there's so much energy towards this one child who's having this terrible struggle the parents are feeling completely isolated get the kid into treatment the focus is still on this kid and no one's got mirrors up no one's looking in the mirror to saying if everything i did got us to this point what can i do differently yeah yeah exactly and that's i try really hard to remove the blame and the guilt and the shame and the finger pointing and just say hey look we, we're here where we, we are where we are. So let's deal with what we have. Then we can go back into the family structure and say, oh, you were raised by a pair of alcoholics. So, you know, you, you know, you were terrified when your kids started using drugs and alcohol. So you started really hovering on top of them and, you know, and creating a division between you and your kid. Well, that makes sense. I mean, given the nature of how you were raised, let's, you know, but let's let's figure out a way that your 16-year-old, you can tell him, look, I love you and I trust you, but I'm going to give you a drug test every week. And if you fail it, here's what's going to happen. Enabling. You know, if, you, if you pass it, here's what's going to happen. Yeah. You know? Enabling is a massive 
issue with uh, with parents yeah. and kids who are struggling. Let's talk about enabling for a second. I had a, oh, yeah. a, a there's a um, Stephen Kavalkovich who's got a great podcast called Rescuing the Rescuer. He said uh, when I interviewed him, my parents killed themselves enabling me to death. And I was like, man, yeah. let's talk about yeah. enabling for a second. First of all, how do you know oh, if you're a parent yeah. who's enabling? Uh, you know, it's really... Well, I can tell you clinically how I know if somebody's enabling is that they're minimizing. There's a lot of minimizing and a lot of explanations or a lot of excuse making going on. Well, that teacher doesn't like him. Well, you know, he fell into a bad crowd. It's, I guess the thing I always look for from the parents is it's always somebody else's fault other than the kid. And one of the things that I try to get across to them is that, hey, look, you know, these are decisions that your child is making. And, you know, I don't really care if he's hanging out with the student council or if he's hanging out with the kids that are barely getting by. He's still making those choices. Let's help him make better choices. Let's address that. One of the things that I try to work with the parents on is getting them to a place where they can sort of take a step back and like, oh, okay. So, so that's, he wasn't sick. He was hungover. <laughs> like, right, exactly. You know? He didn't quit soccer because, you know, the coach hates him and he singled him out. He just likes getting high more than he likes going to practice and sort of helping people see the reality of the situation right? as opposed to, you know, allowing them to come up with the stories and the excuses. And, and, and that means being somewhat not confrontational, but sort of hearing them out, listening to them and then kind of saying, you know, here's the thing. It, you know, kids that really struggle with drugs and alcohol or drugs that struggle with academics or struggle with their behavior, it's pretty obvious and it's been going on for a while. And it's not just something that's happened in the last six weeks. Let's take a look at how has this been evolving over the last five or six years and, and what have you guys done as parents to, to look at this? And, you know, a lot of times they're just like, well, you know, I thought he was just being a boy. It's no big deal. Boys will be boys or girls will be girls or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, unfortunately, what that teaches them is that there's no accountability for their behavior. One of the enabling excuses that I heard a lot is, you know, I, I thought he was just experimenting or she was just experimenting. No. And I'm like, it's not like they have a lab coat in a laboratory. Like they're effing <laughs> using drugs. Like, and after experimenting, they're done experimenting. Now there is, you know, there's, there is experimentation and then there's use and then there's yeah. abuse and then there's dependency. And when it, they usually call it experimentation up to dependency. And, and it's not where once a parent says, okay, I'm enabling, or even even more frustrating, a parent is very clear that they're enabling, but they can't seem to get out of the enabler spin. How do, how do, you, how do you help a parent out of the spin of enablement? Well, that's where I, I've kind of created the system, like I said, boundaries, accountability, and structure. So what we do is, and, and, and what I find is that families, like what you're talking about, they tend to come back at me with this list of 25 regulations they want to place upon the kid. And I'm like, no, I can't live like that. He can't He's 16. He's not going to do it. No, you know? it's a setup so, of failure is what it is. Exactly. So what I like to look at them and say is, look, let's just make it clear. Three things, drugs and alcohol, academics, behavior at home. So we're going to set a boundary. What's the boundary? I find if I make things really simple for the families that are deep in that enabling that you're talking about, it's easier for them to enforce that. And then what I do behind that is say, 
look, I, for the next couple months, I want you to come in and see me on a regular basis and we can review this. I'm going to be your coach and, and we're going to see how it goes. So what we do is we talk about, okay, what's the boundary? No drugs and alcohol. Okay, great. Weekly drug tests. However it looks. It can be drug tests at a facility. You can buy them on Amazon. If we're looking to just find positive, negative, if we need, you know, percentages or, you know, how, how high levels are, we can worry about that. But let's just establish the lay down that that's what we're going to do and that's how it's going to go. And same thing with the academic. The families, they walk out all excited and we're going to do this. And then what happens is, you know, oh, this weekend's homecoming. Well, you know, he really wants to go with his friends. Okay, well, did he pass the drug test? Is he passing his classes? Has he been behaving acceptably at home? Well, no, but we just thought it would be okay. Well, okay, but here's the thing. When you tell your child that there's a system of accountability and then you don't hold them accountable, what do you think you're teaching them? Right. And those are the questions I ask. One of my favorite ones is when you're arguing with a 14-year-old, who do you think is winning the argument? That's a brilliant way to put it. What, what I say the exact same thing to, par to, to parents. I'm like, look, if a child in development, <laughs> if their brain is literally the brain of a two-year-old, because it's in development, it's dumping all kinds of old stuff, building all kinds of new stuff. Let's even put your kid on drugs. Let's just go ahead and use the words that we use. My teen is crazy. And you're arguing with him. So if you're arguing with a crazy person, really tell me who's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And, and the cool part is when you break things down and make it simple like that, the parents just kind of look at you like, oh, okay, yeah. I get it. Because yeah. <laughs> they're not stupid. They, I mean, I think a lot of times, too, that, the other, by the way, one of the things you mentioned earlier was that they, oh, he's experimenting. My other favorite thing they say is, well, it's just pot. It's just pot. You know? I mean, I hear that every week and I'm like, okay, so let's just have a quick chat about what, what, what your kid is actually using. It's not the pot that we were smoking 25, 30 years ago. Sure. Okay. This stuff is ever clear. I mean, That's right. it is. That's right. It's hallucinogenic. And, and the other thing too is that this is the other big thing that, and I'm sure you run into this as well, is that I tell them, here's the deal. I want you to understand something because the next thing they say is, well, then he shows me some study and he wants to argue. I'm like, stop. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, I'm modeling for you. I don't argue. I don't negotiate. I don't have to. I'm the parent. And they're like, I think they, they want to sort of realize that it's okay because they probably grew up in a household where there was some militant behavior where it was like, dad's home. Everybody has to sit quietly and be nice and eat dinner properly and speak properly. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. What I said is, I don't have to argue with you. And my, my other favorite thing I hear is like, well, then he's like, well, you know, it's my phone. I'm like, really? Who bought it? Well, I did. Who pays the monthly bill? Well, I do. So whose phone is it? You right. know? And, and the other thing I tell them, this is always a big eye opener, no matter who the family is. They're like, well, he won't give it to me. I'm like, oh, I don't care. Call the, call the provider and shut it off, you know, or call the provider and... Your parents you know, really do them. forget in those moments that mm. ownership is a it's a, it's not about oh I gave these things to my kid like I'd never I never ever tell a parent to take the cell phone you've given this cell phone no. as a gift to a kid but you mm -hmm. 
you are in charge of the internet. You, Unless your child has a job and is paying for their own service, you're paying for the service. And if they are breaking the law using your service, you are enabling them, you are resourcing <laughs> them to deal drugs over something that you pay for. And you don't have to say you shouldn't. You can say, I'm not willing to pay for a computer service that allows you to do drugs. And, and I want to go back real quick to when a kid, you know, or when a parent, sorry, not a kid, but when a parent says it's just pot. I say, I don't mm. care what it is. I don't care if it's pot, mm -hmm. porn, coke, cutting, uh, stealing, sex. If they're lying, sneaking, stealing, tricking, hiding, falsifying, or breaking the law, it's no good. I don't care what it is. Like it, mm -hmm. if, if it's just weed, are they stealing to get it? Are they sneaking? Are they hiding? Are they, if it's any of it, there's obviously an issue. If it wasn't a problem, it's not a problem. But if they're doing any of those things, obviously it's a problem. And obviously they know it's a problem. So that's a, that's a piece I don't like, but I'm right with you on the taking control of your house bag. What really is yours and what really is theirs? And if you're providing them something that they're using to harm themselves or harm other people's children and in any way, and you're paying for it, you really got to look in the mirror. Oh, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. And the other thing too, is that like you said, I, I don't go down the path of arguing with, you know, kids. I just look at them like, well, it's your house. You set the rules. I mean, are you okay with your child using drugs? No. Then that's the end of the conversation. Right. There's no, there's, this is not the American debating society. You know? <laughs> this is, it's my house. These are my rules. And honestly, I would tell you this. I don't care if a kid pays for the, the cell phone or whatever. It's irrelevant to me. It's my house. It's my rules. And if you don't like it, you're welcome to emancipate and leave. You know, Boy, that, uh, it's just that simple. So you have brought up three terms that I really <laughs> defined that a lack of any of the you've, – you've like defined the, the, the pyramid of uh, non-enablement. It's, it's boundaries, accountability, and structure. You, can, you set the yep. rules, you stay accountable to them, and you create a structure in your household that demonstrates a willingness to be held accountable and follow these rules. This is really good stuff. Boundaries, accountability, and structure. Now let's talk about structure. Let's talk about the structure yeah. of the home. For yeah. example, I know that both Harvard and Stanford has proven that one of the things that keeps kids away from risky behavior is uh, family dinners. Mm -hmm. That's oh, structure. absolutely. Because it shows the kids that the parents are engaged in their lives and they're interested. Let's be honest. Kids go out and find trouble because nobody's talking to them. Nobody's hanging out with them. You know, nobody's in they, If they feel like nobody's interested in them or is supporting them or nurturing them or caring for them, they're going to go find it somewhere else. In that same study, Harvard said family dinners, something for your child to do between the hours of three o'clock and seven o'clock, parents mm -hmm. knowing other parents, you know, your kids' friends' mm -hmm. parents, and honest, open conversation around brain chemistry, not drugs are bad, drugs are good arguments, but honest conversation around brain chemistry, which means parents have to do a little bit of study. But those other three things, they can control today. They can figure out today. Stop texting during dinner. Get to know your kid's friend's parents and something for your kid to do between three o'clock and seven o'clock. 
Absolutely. And having that expectation and providing that for them. What I also, what I like to do, people tell people is, hey, when you're making dinner or, you know, what if someone's making dinner, have your kid come down and do their homework at the dinner table. Yeah, exactly. They can put on a headset. What I always hear is like, oh, well, he just goes to his room. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, you're allowing that. Uh, Second of all, if I were a 16 year old kid and every day I go hide in my room, there's something going on. That kid is obviously struggling with something. And and the other thing I teach them, because I spent 20 years in sales, is don't interrogate them. They won't respond to that. Nobody responds to that. Sit down with them and say, hey, how's it going? Use open-ended questions. What's going on? Tell me about class. You know, all the therapy stuff that we learn in our graduate program. And And the other thing is, listen. Don't have a conversation with your kid with the intent of trying to steer the conversation where you want it to go. Just listen and let them tell you whatever it is they want to tell you. And no judgment, no finger pointing. Just listen, because let me tell you, you'll learn. I mean, trust me, as soon as the kids feel comfortable and safe talking to you, they're going to tell you more than you want to know. (laughs) (laughs) But as far as answering your direct question structure. So when I look at boundaries, accountability, and structure, when I say structure, what I mean is if you accept the boundary and behave to the boundary, here's the rewards you get. It's very love and logic. If you don't do the drug test, if you don't do the school, you know, your academics aren't up to par or your behavior at home isn't acceptable, then what you have to do is have the consequences. And again, this is not about using punitive behavior, shaming, judging, guilting, finger pointing, belittling, yelling, we're going to take all that off the table. It's just really straightforward. Hey, man, it's a bummer you didn't get your grades done and you didn't pass your drug test. So what that means is you're now going to be my personal assistant for the weekend. And so where I go, you go. What I do, if I'm doing chores or the house needs to be cleaned or the whatever, if yours, guess what? That's going to be your responsibility after you get your homework done. And let me tell you, there isn't a kid on the planet that wants to spend the weekend hanging out with their parents doing chores. But you have to be consistent with these boundaries and these consequences. Absolutely. That is consistency is probably the number one word that I use on a daily basis. And you know the thing is, and you know this because you're deep into love and logic, kids crave consistency. And the boundaries. brain craves consistency. It is oh. one, of, one of the primary functions of the brain is to search for patterns. Oh. Well, it makes them feel safe. Yes. Like you said, family dinners. They know we're going to have dinner together. They know we're going to hang out together. They know they have the consistency and the safety. But that's half of it. The other half is teaching the parents in that time that they spend with their kids, don't belittle them. Don't go after them. Don't dictate things to them. Let them be an equal in the conversation. If every family dinner is a conversation about how the kids should focus more on their schoolwork and buckle down and be a responsible <laughs> young adult, they're, they're, of course they're going to skip it. Like it's got to, you've got to declare some neutral ground so that they know that dinner is a safe place to come. Or that when you go to your mom and give the code word says, Hey mom, I got to have a hard conversation with you. You know, that mom knows this is when I shut up and listen. I don't give advice. I don't do that. Like, but those are boundaries that parents have to set with themselves. You know, yeah. if during the neutral ground family dinners, 
a kid says, well, a failing meth. And the dad suddenly gets all tight chested because, you know, what you need to understand is that if you don't, then you can't and go to college and then, then you'll never get a job and then you'll starve to death and die. And then, then the kid's not going to share with you. But if the dad goes, well, you know, obviously I'm feeling really tight chested right here. And so I'm just going to listen. So it's not that I'm ignoring. It's just that you know, I'm listening because I'm all triggered out and I know if I respond, I'm going to make this worse. So talk away, kid. I love you. But the parents, exactly. have to, they have to be able to set boundaries with themselves. The parents have to plug in the phones and not check. If, if someone texts during dinner, you leave your damn phone on the kitchen counter and you stay oh, with your kid. I'll tell you what, that is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with you on that entirely. And, and it, I mean, it, look, it's just as hard for the parents as it is for the kid. Thank you. you know, yes. the, the, and, and again, when I go back to when I work with the families, it's about normalizing for them and saying, hey, I know this is hard. This is not easy. I know you're scared. And when you when people get scared, they get angry. And when they get angry, they take actions. They start commanding things and dictating things. And the problem there is that there isn't a 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old on the planet that's going to respond to their parents barking orders at them. Right. They just, it's, it's just never going to happen. What you have to do is just look at them and say, here's the deal. Like you said, oh my God, that just, ugh. I mean, I get it. That scares me too. And wow, what do you think we should do? How, how do you think we're going to figure this out? And I think when you engage the kids in the conversation, and, and again, I'm not giving the kid an equal vote. The kid's not one of the parents, but you're allowing them to be heard and allowing them to understand that you're part of the family and we love you. And there are times when, as a parent, I'm going to make a command decision and it's not going to be up for debate. What's your strategy with the stubborn parents who really are, and I'll say authentically believe that they yeah. haven't done the wrong thing and their kids are just bad seeds or they inherited grandpa's alcoholism or how do you tell the parents that it doesn't matter whether you were a good parent or not, there's some things you got to change? You know, I got to tell you that uh, when, when the parents want to come in and it's spend a lot of time rationalizing and explaining and making excuses. I just sit back. I used to get really engaged with them. And now I, I, <laughs> I model what I'm trying to get them to do with their kids. <laughs> I stand back and I'm like, Oh, okay. How's that working? And, and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you're in my office paying me $140 an hour to explain to me why it's not your fault. Right. How's that working? How's that working? And, and they just look at me and I can tell they're a little pissed because they're like, well, you're being kind of a jerk. And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying you came here to ask me for help. I've given you my help. I've given you my advice and you're not using it. So why do you keep coming? And I'm very direct like that. And I'm not mean. I'm just very direct like, hey, you don't have to come here. You don't have to take my advice. You don't have to keep paying me and coming here and arguing with me and telling me how I'm wrong. Why do you think some parents are so defensive about how they've raised their kids? Because I think they are terrified about how it reflects on them. You know, I mean, I know for a fact they just, you know, when their kid is screwing up or, you know, their kid is on the news or their kid, whatever, they're just like, it's not my fault. I mean, that's my wife's family or that's my ex-wife's family or, you know, that's, there's always an immediate separation from the accountability and the responsibility. And if what I do, honestly, at that moment, as I say, now look at the way you're behaving right now. We have a problem and your first instinct 
is to immediately dismiss accountability and responsibility. Nice. Who does that, who does that remind you of? <laughs> That's a you hard know? one. I mean, we really, obviously, because we, we really want to protect our kids from pain and suffering. Yeah. Enabling or being a drill sergeant parent, you know, this is how it's going to do. It's my way or the highway. It's all based on this theory that if we control everything or if we protect them from everything, that they will be safe. And neither of those things work. So suddenly being called to task on what you've done so far. The way I soften it for families is I say, listen, everything you've done has got you here. And what you have here is support. What you have here is advice. What you have here is options. And you may have not had that before. So good job Mm -hmm. getting here. Now you have to do something different or you're just going to end up right back here. The same thing will get you here. Yeah. And again, I use the analogy of being a consultant into a business. And a lot of times, I mean, nowadays, a lot of times what I get is both parents are working. You know, yeah, that's that's and, very true. And so when I start breaking things down, like like I mean, just what you're saying, when I start breaking things down into the concept of this is, you know, this is like a business. You've spent a bunch of money and gotten a plan from the consultant, and then you know because the business is failing, and your first reaction is, yeah, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Screw him. And I was like, okay, okay, great, knock yourself out. I mean, you know, here this is. Here's the thing. I know for a fact that the system I've created works. And one of two things will happen. The kid will either turn around and be like, oh, wow, okay, I got to get my act together and stop doing this stuff. Or the kid's going to just continue to sort of struggle with the drugs, the alcohol, the academics, the behavior. And in that case, then we go to plan B. And plan B is a facility like you. And those are okay. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fantastic. I'm, gr- I'm, gr- I'm grateful and thankful that places like your place exist. One of the plan B ideas, one of the things that I find a lot of parents have resistance to, you brought up earlier, and I don't have a lot of experience going to them. I've been to some, but could you talk mm-hmm. about Al-Anon for a second? I, yeah. I think one of the most powerful things is walking the door and seeing you know, 15 other parents who've, who are going through the same crap you are, but... Why else? Why do we send parents to Al-Anon and why should parents go? Why we send them to Al-Anon is because, like you just said, they're going to find out they're not the only ones fighting the same battle yeah. and that they need the support. The one thing, I, uh, Al-Anon can be a little tricky in the sense that what I get is these phone calls. From, well, where's the Al-Anon meeting that is just for parents? I'm like, well, there really isn't anything. That's not how it works. Right. So what I look for, that's why I dig into the, when I meet with the parents, I dig into their family structure and start to realize that there's been some dysfunction, some addiction, some alcoholism, you know, or mental health illness so that they can go in there. And because again, they're going to do the exact same thing we talked about earlier. They're going to walk in and start talking about their kids as opposed to talking about themselves. And so what I try to help them understand is that you have come by your behavior naturally. You were raised in this environment, so of course you behave like this. So let's go get you help from other people that have conquered this problem and find another alternative. One of my favorites right now actually is adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. The ACA meetings are all about taking responsibility for your behavior and understanding where it comes from and why. And I think once people can grasp that and say, oh, okay, I was raised in a house of chaos or a house of crisis or a house of addiction. So no wonder I parent this way. That makes perfect sense. And it kind of gets them off the hook. They 
they're not bad people. I try to prepare them that way, and I even give them the literature and have them buy the books ahead of time and start reading them so that they can feel like they, they belong. And then, then I'm like, you know, you can go to the meetings, and the meetings are free, and you're going to find people just like you. And there's a lot of resistance. It scares the hell out of them. And, but once they go, they're like, oh, my God. First of all, my neighbor was there or my coworker or so-and-so was there. And I, and I know that person. and I like that person. And I'm like, right, number one. And then number two, what happens is they're like, oh, I'm not such a oddball. I'm not crazy. I'm not unique. It turns out other people are you know, fighting the exact same battle and it makes them feel safe. That's really the, that's the function. 30% of the effect, the positive effect that our parents weaken. We run a four-day parent event every quarter. It's for parents of kids in our facility. And it's a it's a restructuring. It's a it's a reorganization. It's a deconstruction of their current system and help them establish a new one. Mm-hmm. But such a large percentage of the joy and relief that they get from the event are the other parents in the room. When some parent is telling a story and they say, you know, my kid stole my car. I will hear gasps from other parents and I'll stop the story and I'll say, everybody whose kid has stolen your car, raise your hand. And half the room <laughs> hands goes up and, and I'm like, don't look at me, look around. Like I've, and I say, how many of your kids have called CPS on you and, and told a fake story? <laughs> how many, like, and, and the, these parents, like they burst into tears realizing that they are not alone. Other people have gone through it. Other people have gone through it successfully. Other people have dealt with it. Other people are dealing with it. And not one of us is smarter than all of us. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, by the way, I run two family programs at uh, local treatment centers here in Colorado. as a two-day intensive, very similar to yours. And my favorite question, my favorite question to ask is, hey, who in this room bought their kids drugs? You know, there's like four or five families. They're like, not me. No way. Uh uh-uh. uh. I'm like, oh, okay. Who here gave their kids money to pay their rent? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then they're all like, oh, shit. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who gave them gas money? Who gave them grocery money? You know, and they're like, oh, yeah. All right. I'm like, okay. You, so let's just agree. And they all look around at each other and they're all like, yeah, me too. Me too. But that's what, that's the beauty of that environment, right? That's right. The me too concept of, I'm not the only one. And then we can start talking about solutions. So we're coming around the end. I got a couple of minutes left. So I want to make yeah. sure we use yep. these couple of minutes so that parents listening to this, they're like, all right, this Kevin Peterson guy's on to something. I need to get in touch with him. <laughs> what do they do? How do they how do they find you in the in the multitude and plethora and the chaos and crisis of their own lives and the multitude and plethora of the amount of support, not sure whether that title is what they're looking for, but they listen to this podcast. They love what you have to say. They want their whole family to get help. How do they find you, Kevin? www.petersonfamilycounseling.com. And Peterson is an E, not an O. Um, And 720-541-6289. You can book directly online. And yes, I do phone sessions. So I have people that can call me from outside the area that can't physically come into the office. My style of therapy is let's hit it fast and hit it hard. I don't want to become a member of the family. I'm not moving in. We're not going to spend the next five years talking about this stuff. It's 
rock and roll. Let's go. Let's get on this. Let's make it happen. And you had said earlier, uh, you work with families before, during and after this crisis, this event, this this program, a, a rehab or anything with a kid. Absolutely. At any point in time, I'm happy to deal with it, look at it. I'm also in the midst of writing a book about this topic, and it hasn't been titled yet, but I think it's going to be something along the lines of the burning house or the house is on fire, because literally, and I'm I'm sure you and I would say the same thing, I get phone calls every day about this exact same topic. And the, the sad part is the families are like, how come, how come it took us this long to find you? And my, my wife, who I, I love and adore, she's like, your message is one that needs to be brought to a larger audience, not just two people in a room. There are too many people, too many families struggling with this around the country that need help. And so I'm doing what I'm doing and in my office, but I'm also trying to go to the next level. I want parents, I want clinicians, and I want teachers to really hear what I'm about to say, because this fits with what Kevin is saying and the impact on families of finding out that other people's kids are going through the same stuff, that other families are going through the same stuff. We get handed statistics all the time. In Colorado, 20% kids are reporting every day pot smoking. Okay, well, that's only mm-hmm. 20% of the kids. In Colorado, 15% of kids are reporting self-harm. In Colorado, 80% of the kids know someone personally who has sent naked pictures of themselves over the phone. There's 12% of kids who are suffering depression and anxiety. Now, any one of those numbers, minus the 80% of kids who know someone personally, and it could be themselves, who've sent naked photos. Any one of those numbers, the 15, the 12s, the 20s, those don't mean that much on their own. But when you add up, everybody's got something they're dealing with. Every Mm. family, this Facebook profile of what families should be does not exist. It is not real. Everybody struggles. Everybody goes through challenges with their kids and everybody needs help. And I don't care how bad it's gotten with your family. People like Kevin and people like myself have seen the worst of the worst situation and know that there's hope. I know you've been told jail addiction leads to jails, institutions, and death. Jails, institutions, and death. There are doorways Mm -hmm. before the gates of hell. And you got to find them. And inside those rooms are a lot of parents who know exactly what you're going through. And I will say, a family is only as sick as its secrets. And so you got to kind of get out there and uh, rip open those those closets filled with skeletons. Yeah. Well, and realize that now we're talking about the shame stuff. And, you know, it's not, I mean, everyone wants to feel like it's this deep, dark secret. And what will the neighbors think? And blah, blah, blah. And it's like, who cares? It's your child. Let's get them help. I agree. You know? I agree. Kevin, I want to thank you. Kevin Peterson, thank you so much. And folks, remember that's P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N when you're finding Kevin online. I want to thank our boss goddess at Mental Health News Radio, Kristen Walker, my engineer, Emily Parker, and everybody else at Mental Health News Radio who helps out. Remember, parents, the rules are you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationships second, and you take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our kids. I want to thank my guest, Kevin Peterson. I want you to look for him and find him. He's doing great work here. And I will talk to you next time on Beyond Risk and Back. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.